Okay, well, let's get into it. We have quite a passage uh, in store for us today. We have two stories, and both of these stories are chaotic and just a little bit crazy. We're following Jesus through his messianic ministry, and he's done all sorts of things. He's, we're coming out of a section where he has, has a group of people following him, these supporters, and he's begun to teach in parables. He's explaining the parables, and he's been talking particularly about how people receive the word of God. So as the sower goes out and he throws his seed, it's going to hit different type of reception amongst different people. And he gives a couple of illustrations for how that works, and we looked at those last time. And now we join Jesus, and he's on a boat, and it's the story where he calms the sea. Right after this, we're going to move into the next story about Jesus healing the man who had a demon. In fact, he talked to one demon, but he actually had over 5,000 demons in him, which sounds terrible. I don't know another word for that. And as we look at that, we're going to draw some parallels between these two stories. This, these demons are cast into a herd of pigs, and then the pigs promptly run and throw themselves off a cliff into the water and drown. Very unusual stories. So what we're going to see then after that is Jesus continues to establish his authority over different realms. And we could look at it in this way. In Luke chapter 8, what we have is Jesus establishing authority over nature. We're going to see that with the calming of the storm. We're going to see he establishes his authority over demons and the demonic world. Then we're going to see he establishes authority over disease, the woman who was healed of the discharge of blood. That will be in a couple of weeks. And then we see that he actually establishes his authority over death as well. And these basic four realms, uh, Jesus will continue to establish authority in these four realms. We can kind of take all of his miracles and tuck them into one of these or more of these sometimes. And we'll make reference to that as we continue to move through the Gospel of Luke. So let's look and just kind of look at the big picture of what's going on here. We're gonna look at these two stories and we're gonna do that sort of together. And you might think these stories have absolutely nothing to do with each other, but in fact, I think they do. And we'll show you that as we move along. So the first thing I'd like to do is just read our text. So this will be Luke chapter eight, 22, down through verse 39. Verse 22. One day, he got into the boat with his disciples And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in danger. And when they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. 
he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter into these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down to the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. These are two very unusual and strange stories. So let's draw some comparisons first and then we'll take apart the story of him calming the storm and then we'll look at the story of the swine, the pigs. So comparisons between these, I think it's just interesting. I'm a chart person. Some of you guys really connect with charts. Others of you don't, but just indulge us chart people here for a moment. I find this super helpful to look at it this way. You can see a side-by-side -side comparison of similar things, the way the story is told. There's obvious differences, of course, but there's some similarities. So there's a reference to traveling to the other side of the sea which we'll look at what that means in just a moment. So in verse 22 and then verse 26. So 22 through 25 is the first story. 26 through 39 is the second story. And then there's this detailed explanation of this dramatic calamity, we could call it, the terrible storm. And then this man who has many, many demons. In fact, as we'll see, when he says legion, it's a military term. And a Roman legion of soldiers would be 5,600 soldiers or thereabout. So the man had many a demon inside of him. Then Jesus issues a command to the chaotic forces. So in the first story, it's a command to nature itself. In the second, it's a command to these demons. And then there's a calm and a serenity that follows Jesus' command. When he makes this command, the waves are stilled. When he commands the demons to go out, we find the man clothed and in his right mind, it tells us. And then in both stories, there's actually a response of fear. Jesus scares them to death. Now we'll talk about the application of the story of the storm a little bit later in the sermon, but oftentimes when we look at a story like this, we read, oh, Jesus calms the storm. I have storms in my life, maybe Jesus will calm my storms as well. That's not a terrible application, but I actually don't think that's quite the point exactly of what Jesus is doing here. Did you notice that after he calmed the storm, they were very afraid? So if Jesus was just trying to make them not afraid of the storm, he actually scared them to death by calming the storm. So something else is going on here, and I think it's more about the identity of the Messiah than it is about this particular storm, and we'll, we'll see that as we move along. So here's a big picture. I think I've shown you this map before. I found this very helpful as well. 
This is Luke's gospel, and if you picture Israel here with the Mediterranean Sea there on your left, what you're gonna see is that Jesus moves his way down. He's working his way down to Jerusalem, which is where the last of the book will take place, and the gospel writers kind of all follow this path. Jesus works north to south for the most part. And so in this first part here, and the Gospel of Luke and then Mark as well, Jesus bounces back and forth across the Sea of Galilee quite a few times. This is the Jordan River, the Jordan flows down and then ends here in the Dead Sea, Jerusalem is over here. And so Jesus will make his way down. So Galilee, Samaria, Judea, those places will be referenced a little bit later. So at this point, we are here, the Lord's mission in Galilee. So we're up here at the top. Um, that's where things are mostly taking place. Now we're told that on this lake, it was the Sea of Galilee up at the north of Israel, as you see. And it was a place where it looks much like the West. Those of you who have traveled a little bit or maybe lived out in like California or Arizona, Nevada, something like that, um, probably looks pretty similar to that. This is a picture, not the greatest picture in the world, but gives you a frame of reference for what was going on. Now, I lived in Los Angeles for a little while, while I was in school out there and worked at a church there uh, for a few years. And the, we had a lake just north of Los Angeles. Some of you who are from there or been out there may be familiar with Lake Castaic. Lake Castaic was kind of famous for these afternoon, the wind would start blowing, and because of the mountains and because of the way it would funnel in, you would have a nice calm day and then all of a sudden you got white caps. And if you're out there on a little kayak or something, it makes for a really interesting day um, uh, on a small boat or something. It's very similar over in the, in the Middle East. And so you have this lake and there's a series of mountains and it's kind of a crater down in there. And so when the wind starts blowing, it channels it. It, it kind of funnels all the wind and then all of a sudden you can just have a storm kick up. These are professional fishermen many of them that are with Jesus. And so when they're out there and they're scared and they think they're gonna die, this is not a good situation at all. Kind of interesting that they wake up the non-professional fishermen and say, what are you gonna do about this? Um, because they knew there's something about Jesus and they knew that he could help. So let's look at the story here. Um, we're gonna see the power and peril of nature and I wanna talk a little bit about the Old Testament and how it often references the power and peril of nature. There's many, many references we could look at. We'll just limit ourselves to a couple. And then we're gonna see the power over nature. In the Old Testament, the Lord has power over nature. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus has power over nature. What do you think the gospel writers are telling us about who Jesus is? We all know something about the power of nature. Most of us have probably been caught in a situation out in nature that we wish we had not been caught in. Maybe it was a storm. Our sailors amongst us, I know there's many of you that have spent quite a bit of time out on the water, and you could probably tell some pretty dramatic tales of being out on the high seas and then all of a sudden a storm blows in. Many, many of you have experienced that. We know something about this living here on the coast with hurricanes that come in. Remember, it was years ago, I was living in Alabama at the time, and I was, there was a hurricane coming into the Gulf, and I, I was in a hardware store picking up some, some things and supplies, and this, this guy comes in, and uh, they say, hey, what, what can we help you find? And he says, I need one of them hurricane deflectors, <laughs> like hurricane deflector, and, his, and it, was, it went back and forth with typical Grand Bay, Alabama um, 
literary genius uh, back and forth. I speak fluent, literary, uh, I speak fluent Grand Bay, Alabama, so if anybody needs a translator, I'm happy to help um, with that. And the, you know, they went back and forth on this, and obviously we know there's no such thing as a hurricane deflector, or deflector, as some of you would say. There's no such thing. Uh, we can't control it. It's interesting to me, even on your insurance policies, you ever notice that you have the acts of God on there? There's this sort of underlying monotheistic understanding of the world in your insurance documents. Your agent may not call it quite that, but it is kind of interesting. That there's, it's just considered something you can't control. So nature is considered that. We can't control it. We know it's dangerous. That's why we check the weather before we go anywhere. That's why we watch the weather when storms are coming in, and we know. So let's, let's just take a quick, quick trip through the Old Testament, and what, you're, what we'll see emerge is that the, the elements are considered, and particularly the sea, is considered this sort of chaos, and it's untamable, and it's this sort of thing out there that's very scary because they didn't have a lot of understanding and explanation for the sea, and that's really one of the last frontiers we still have on our world today. Uh, there's still things in the depths of the sea that we can't quite get to. Um, it's too deep. It's too much pressure. We can't quite even photograph or send like droids or anything down there. It's pretty amazing, the sea. So we start out in Genesis. I'll just run through a couple of these really quickly. It's interesting that the Bible starts out, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then we get this. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we start out with this watery chaos, and then God speaks order and creation into this watery chaos. And this is how the Hebrew people understood that God is the one who orders and is in charge of this chaos. He brings order. Psalm 74. We looked at this one not that long ago. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. It's an allusion back to the Red Sea incident where God parted the sea and allowed Israel to walk through. You crushed the heads of Leviathan and you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open the springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing springs. So it's God who broke open the sea and allowed Israel to come through, crushing these other deities in the process. God's the true one who controls nature. Very important point when we come back to Jesus' words in just a moment. One other passage that I think is significant. Psalm 107, 23 through 25. Some went down to the uh, sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord. That's Lord is all caps. That's Yahweh, God's personal name. They saw Yahweh, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised up the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves and the sea. So these guys are out on the sea. They're doing business. Yahweh speaks, and all of a sudden, there's a bad storm. Well, then they cry out to him, and this happens, skipping a couple of verses. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Now, note verse 29, and see if we've heard this somewhere before, very recently. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Isn't that interesting? Sounds exactly like what Luke tells us Jesus did. Now, 
will lead you to this a couple of different times. But if Jesus is able to do this, if he's able to do what only Yahweh, God, can do in the Old Testament, it's leading us to this conclusion that who must the person of Jesus be? He must be God. And that's why the disciples asked the question at the end of our story here, who is this man that even the wind and the sea, even the winds and the waves obey him? It's amazing. So the power and peril of nature, we understand something about this. And then the power over nature. By the way, this is just a footnote on this idea of the, the waters and God's control and bringing order to chaos. Have you ever thought about that in light of Revelation 21, 1? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, what's that a reference to? I don't think it's telling us that it's no longer salt water. I don't think it's telling us that there is no water in the new creation. In fact, it tells us there's a lake, but there's no sea. Why no sea? Because the sea refers to this watery chaos. There's no longer the power and the peril. There's there's just God. It's all good. It's renewed. It's Eden 2.0, rebooted. So this is where we are. So let's look now at our story, the power and the peril of nature. We saw that in the Old Testament. Let's look at the story here in the New Testament. So they're in the boat. It's simple enough. Verse 23, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. They wake him up, says, we're about to die. What are you doing taking a nap? This story resonates with me on multiple levels. One, because I love being out on the water. And two, I love taking naps. I think taking a nap is one of the great gifts. A little power nap in the middle of the day, nothing better, people. Just give it a run. I'm not talking about like the four-hour, you know, wake me up at five kind of thing. But just a 15-minute power nap, nothing better. Jesus is napping, but it's coming across to the disciples like, don't you care? Don't you care? Mark's account, we'll bounce off that a couple of times because he gives us a few details which are helpful. In Mark's account of this in Mark chapter five, he says, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, the we here, we're perishing, Jesus is in the boat too. So don't you care that you, me, us, all y'all are perishing? You're on the boat. Jesus, in his humanity, he's been busy, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been casting out demons, and we'll learn a little bit later in this chapter that there's some physical toll that healing takes on Jesus in his humanity. That's an interesting mystery we'll have to look at another day. Jesus responds to them. Mark chapter four records it this way. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He rebukes them for their lack of faith. Now, before we start hitting on the disciples here, like, what's wrong with you guys? You've been with Jesus. You've seen the amazing things that he's done. Let me just, just honestly, would you do any better? Like, really? Now, many of you have been out on the, on the seas in big boats. These are not like massive cruise ship, you know, thousand foot kind of boats. Uh, these are fishing boats, you know, probably 20, 30, 40 feet, maybe. And so these are small boats and they're getting thrown around. There's water coming in. They think they're going to die. They think they're going to die. It's very dangerous. And so what does Jesus do? The windstorm came, they're in danger. 
And they went and woke him saying, this is verse 24, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And then he said to them, where is your faith? We'll come back to that a little bit later. What's so amazing about this passage to me, don't miss this, it's probably been pointed out to you before. When he says, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. Now, we can imagine the wind stopping. We have sometimes, we had some of this this week actually, where you would have a super strong gust of wind and then it's like it, like there's no wind. And then a strong gust of wind and no wind. We have this when we have bands coming through with tropical storms or hurricanes. But the water doesn't do that. When the seas are really stirred up, and it takes a while for them to settle back down. So those of you, maybe if you go offshore fishing, you'll watch the marine forecast. If you see it's calling for 11-foot seas, you gotta give it a few days. You're not, you're not going back out. Even if the wind stops immediately, the waves take a while. But what happened is Jesus spoke, and it, this happened. They went from, you know, we're getting thrown around, we're about to die, to, hey, pretty chill night out here on the lake, right? And that is what absolutely scares them. Where is your faith? They were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? As we mentioned a moment ago, the disciples asked the right question. Who is this man? Who is it that can command? Who is it? This sounds a lot like Psalm 107. Yahweh commands, God commands the winds and the sea, and yet the winds and the sea are listening to this guy. Who must he be? He must be the God-man. He is, in fact, the God-man. This is where C.S. Lewis kind of famously coined what's called the trilemma, and it says basically this. If you take the teachings of Jesus, some people want to say Jesus was just a really good moral teacher, and Lewis said that you can't reduce it to that because if you take Jesus and what he said, he's either a liar, he's not telling you the truth, he's a lunatic, he's crazy because you can't say the things that he did or he's in fact the Lord. It, you can't reduce him down to a good moral teacher because a good moral teacher wouldn't say crazy things like destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it back up. A good moral teacher wouldn't say eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's weird. A good moral teacher would not say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes, into, comes through me goes to the Father. You can't say that. You can't say that and just be a good moral teacher. That's actually a false teacher if he's not truly the Lord, if he's not God in the flesh. So we have a clear illustration of this here. We'll come back to some application of that in a moment, but we're gonna move on from the story of the storm to when we see the pigs that flew ever so briefly off the cliff. This is a crazy story as well. What we're gonna see is this man that comes and approaches Jesus with the demon or demons. We're gonna see a brief conversation. The demons are cast into the pigs and then we'll spend a little time talking about the reaction to that. So they've made their way across the sea, verse 26. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped on a land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. 
Now, it's interesting, this man has been living, apparently he's a man of the city. They know who he is, but for a long time, doesn't tell us how long, he's been afflicted with these demons and they've tried to bind him with shackles and chains, but he keeps breaking free. Mark's account tells us that he was cutting himself with rocks. This guy's seen better days. He's in a really, really bad spot. On top of that, he refuses to wear clothes. Sounds like a toddler, doesn't he? Just out doing his own deal and absolutely refuses to be part of society. He, in fact, he can't be part of society. He's in a terrible, terrible place. So Jesus shows up on the bank and immediately this man comes. We'll talk more about Jesus and his interactions with demon-possessed people in the spirit world. I know everybody has a lot of questions about all of that. We don't have time to deal with all of that this morning. But I picture it's something like this. Jesus was sort of a magnet for the spirit world in the first century. And so when he shows up, these, it just rouses everything up. And the spirit world is just awakened. And so this man comes. He knows who Jesus is. He rightly identifies him. What have you to do with me? This is verse 28. What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. Now, we learn that Jesus had commanded the demon to come out of him. And then we get something really, really interesting here. Verse 30. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. So there was a common thought in the day that if you could obtain the name of a spirit, you had power over that spirit, all right? So if they could kind of sneak the name out of the demon, then you had authority over that demon. And so I think this is reflecting a widely held belief at that point, but it also shatters that widely held belief because the guy doesn't, the demon doesn't actually identify himself. He just says, we're legion. There's a whole army of us. Don't worry about my name. And Jesus says, fine then, don't tell me your name. I'm casting you into the pigs. And it works. So Jesus isn't playing, but he's showing, I think, an awareness of the contemporary understanding of how they would have thought about this. Another interesting thing, verse 31, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now notice the demon had first said, don't, are you here to torment me? And then he says, don't send me to the abyss. Now that raises obvious questions. Where is the abyss? What is the abyss? What in the world are we talking about? Here's just a few thoughts, and I have questions as well. I think it's a reference to hell, to a place of punishment, and I think it's a real place. And I preached on this, actually, I think it was about two years ago now. I did a series on heaven and hell, and I kind of laid out the case for why I do believe in a literal hell and eternal punishment. I think it's here in the Bible, and I think the demons are very aware that there is a place of punishment for them. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that some people are headed there, says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. All right, so the devil and his angels and those who don't believe in the Son, the Messiah. There's a division that's taking place, the left and the right. Then in 2 Peter 2.4, we learn that there's some demons that are already there, and I think the demons are aware of this. Hey, some of our buddies are, they got cast down, 
and we don't want to go there. Don't send us there. Can we go to the pigs instead? Interesting. Second Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So there's some, it's a holding tank of sorts. And there's a final judgment coming to these angels who did not keep their, they sinned and they did not keep their proper abode, as it says. And then lastly, Satan is one day headed there, Revelation 20, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So Satan is eventually headed there in what is called the millennium, and we see that the demons are probably aware of all of this. So what does Jesus do? He actually grants them their request, and he lets them go into this herd of pigs. Now, just imagine, it just says here in Luke, it says in verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And then the demons enter these pigs. Now, it says a large herd. Mark's account records a little bit more detail for us. You know how many large is? Some of you may be thinking, no, you know, 50. That seems like a lot of pigs. It's actually 2,000. All right, so 2,000 pigs. Just imagine, like just try to envision that. Like 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of bacon. It's just a lot of pigs. A lot of pigs. And so imagine, try to imagine what would have happened when these, these spirits go into this swine herd and they all start stampeding. Just imagine the chaos and, and craziness that that would have caused. They're just running like crazy and they all go plunging off the lake. Could you, could you imagine being there and just seeing this all play out? What in the world just happened? I think we were better off with the crazy guy that was wandering around the tombs. At least there was just one of him, and we could kind of contain him. We knew where he was. Keep your distance. But now these spirits are in these pigs, and they rush down the steep bank, and they're drowned. There's a lot going on with this. Pigs, of course, are unclean animals to the Jews. And so we're in a Gentile territory at this point. Jews never would have kept pigs. It was unclean against the law. So these Gentile farmers, they lost their livelihood, presumably, which is never really mentioned here in this story. In fact, we have some reaction from the herdsmen. It's a major economic loss there. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, verse 34, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. They're just shocked. They're just running around everywhere. Like, y'all aren't gonna believe what just happened. Uh, you remember our crazy guy that lived down by the tombs? Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, that guy. Well, so there were some demons in him, like a lot. And they went into the pigs and all the pigs are dead now and they drown themselves. Like, what, what are you even talking about? It's just a crazy story. So they fled and told it in the city. And then notice what happens. There's fear, just like the other story. There's fear that sets in. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And presumably they're seeing drowned pigs now, quite a few in the water. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. This is scary. Who is this person? Now notice what happens here as well. 
there's different reactions to the gospel and there's different reactions to the ministry of Jesus. These people want Jesus to go away. This is too scary. This guy is too powerful. Can you just go somewhere else? Verse 36, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the peoples from the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from him, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and he returned. Jesus said, fine, I'll leave. Just amazing. People have different reactions. Very similar thing happened in Philippi when Paul cast the demon out of the slave girl. And the, the, he gets put in jail and then he's released from prison and they finally just said, can, can you just leave now? And I love that in Acts 16. And Paul says, yeah, sure. As soon as you come down here and apologize. And the officials do, they actually did. They said, okay, sorry about that. Um, be on your way now in Philippi. It's an amazing story. It reminds us, and I think is a further illustration of the parable of the soils that we looked at a few weeks ago. The man who had the demons cast out of him, he actually wants to join the party. He, he begs, says, verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with them. So he, he's so, so grateful and receptive of Jesus and just is sitting at his feet and just wants to be near Christ. But the other people who saw this said, you need to leave, this is too dangerous. It's amazing. We have different reactions to the gospel. When you teach the Bible, when you teach the truth from God's word, you're gonna have polar opposite reactions from people. And if you're clear with the gospel, the one thing people can't be is indifferent to the gospel. If you really understand what I'm saying, if you really understand what the Lord says in his word, this is not a casual, indifferent yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, that sounds fine. Whatever works for you, man. We, the gospel is not that. The gospel causes a reaction. It still does today. Paul got the same reaction in places like Acts 13, 16, 17, all over the place. Notice as well, this man is commanded to stay. I'll give you two big picture thoughts from these two texts. We'll take them in reverse order. So where is your witness? You know, Mary, remember Mary Magdalene? She had seven demons cast out from her, and we learn at the beginning of chapter eight that she joined Jesus. So you would think, well, Jesus wants people that are excited about being with him, right? So this guy's had over 5,000 demons. He'd be a great little, he'd be a great testimony tool on Jesus' traveling itinerant ministry. Hey, tell him about the pig story. Uh, this guy, and and show him your scars from where you're cutting yourself. But Jesus doesn't tell him that. He says, no, you're gonna stay. Mary's gonna go with me, and these other people will go with me, but you're gonna stay. Sometimes you go, sometimes you stay. The Lord has different places for each of us, doesn't he? I had a friend in seminary, and ever since he was in high school, his dream was to be an overseas missionary. That's all he ever wanted to do. He dialed in and said, I wanna to go to the country of Lebanon and be a missionary, not an easy place. He trained, he read the books, he went through a whole MDiv course in seminary. That's what he wanted to do. He ended up traveling and had it all set up, found a wife who was willing to go to Lebanon with him, which was no small feat. They were ready to, ready to go. Um, he was excited about it. Traveled over to Lebanon and something went wrong and he's still not exactly clear what went wrong. 
but some of you will be familiar with this vocabulary. He ended up in a meeting with somebody in Washington, D.C., who did not think his jokes about that meeting were funny at all, and he somehow ended up on an Interpol list, which is not good if you know anything about travel. He ended up on an Interpol list, and he was suspected of all sorts of things by the Lebanese government. government. And so all of a sudden, he's not going to do international missions. He actually didn't fly on an airplane for a long time after that because he was scared he was gonna get pulled out and stopped. He still doesn't know what happened. He says, I, I, I still don't understand um, what's going on. He got stopped. Here's the cool part of the story, though. He was able to, he was a very good support raiser. He was able to raise support, and he was able to actually hand off his support to another guy, and he was able to go in his place. Him and his family were able to go. And my friend now, he's a pastor in the States, um, and he's doing a great job, great ministry. And the Lord just redirected him in ways that he did not plan. That was not the plan. But now the Lord has some stay, the Lord has some go. So I think we need to remember that. Some need to go. Don't, don't hear me wrong here. Some need to go. And you need to go tell the nations about Christ. But many of you will need to stay. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, somebody's got to have a job and pay for things. Like somebody's got to do this. This is very practical. Jesus said these, these people, they provided out of their means in Luke 8.3. Some are going to go, some are going to stay. The job of this guy was to stay and to tell the people of that village what the Lord had done for him. Some of you, you just need to go back to the village, go back to the cubicle, back to the copy room, back to the sales floor, and just do your thing and serve the Lord there. You're gonna have opportunities for conversations, people that will never, ever talk to me by choice, some of them. You're gonna have some of those conversations. I'll never get to have those conversations. David will never get to have those conversations, but you will. And so you need to go back and tell what the Lord has done for you. Others, maybe you go. I can't answer that for you. So where is your witness? I think it's question one. And then let's go back to our other story, calming of the storm. Where is your faith? This was Jesus' question. It was his application question of these events to the disciples. Where is your faith? Now I mentioned earlier that the point of the story isn't necessarily you got a storm in your life, Jesus will just calm it all and everything's gonna be great. It's not necessarily the point, but I think we can draw some application here. Isn't it encouraging to know that the one who holds nature in his hands and commands it, he holds your life in his hands as well. He knows about your situation. He knows about your annoying boss. He knows about your financial situation. He knows about your difficult family member. He knows about your grief, your loneliness, your anxiety. He knows. He's well aware. And I think he's asking us the same question. Where is your faith? Now, stop and consider that for a minute. Where is your faith? In what is your faith? Your ability, your strength, intellect, your church, your friends, or Christ? Christ is the only one that's not gonna let you down. Where is it? Don't confuse things that are very useful and helpful for your Savior, right? Those are different categories, Christ is your savior. A lot of people can help you point you to Christ. A lot of good authors and pastors maybe or counselors can help point you to Christ. But they're not Christ. Don't get those categories confused. Where is your faith? What is the object? It has to be Christ. Nothing else is gonna work. And pray for us. Father, we thank you for these two stories. 
and though they are so different, there's so many similarities that we see of Jesus establishing absolute authority over these forces of the world, over nature itself, 